Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs, and our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Due to the coronavirus restrictions, I'm interviewing from home via Zoom, so I'd like to welcome Michael to the show. Hi, Michael. Hi, Bill. Uh, Great to be here. Uh, Thanks for having me on. No worries. Uh, Michael's a compulsive gambler and he's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. So, Michael, do you want to talk a bit about what it is about gambling that led you to be a gambler? What is it about gambling that met a need in you? Uh, That's a a good question. I sort of came to gambling possibly accidentally, I I guess. You know, like like many people, I, I would have a bit of a flutter on the Melbourne Cup and, you know, the odd thing. When the pokies came to Melbourne, I would occasionally go on lunchtime at work, nothing too sort of big or fancy. And, and I grew up in a, in a household where my parents and their friends would play cards. But again, it wasn't anything extreme. You know, Dad wasn't sort of at the track all day or anything like that. But I, I came to it, I guess, uh, when my first marriage started breaking down and I, I sort of turned to activities that would kind of just take my mind off things and I found myself at a at a venue one day when I realized that um, my marriage was sort of irretrievably broken and uh, you know it had the desired effect of kind of taking you know taking up time and sort of just numbing me out I guess but uh, I happened to win a jackpot of some sort on that day and you know people were coming around and patting me on the back and and stuff and and uh but of course my emotional state of mind at the time was um i was devastated that i realized my marriage was over and and uh, so there was this real dissonance between um feeling terrible and um kind of gambling success and 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 the funny thing is was that i walked out of that not not necessarily consciously knowing this but i but i did walk out with a sense that gambling would be what I would turn to when I needed to. And, and that's exactly how it played out. I mean, you know, the, the following uh, couple of years uh, contained a lot of emotional stresses for me and, and being someone that never really um, matured enough to be able to deal with those things on my own. I, uh, you know, turned to gambling more and more and, and, um, it became a, a pattern of behaviour for me. Yeah. Uh, so what, what sort of things led you to being a gambler? Because gambling requires you to spend money. And if you're in a relationship, then ha- how do you hide that? And how do you justify that spending? Yeah, that, look, that's a good question. I, and I, I, I mean, I could have become an, a different sort of addict. Um, because when my first marriage was broken down, uh, I'll be honest, I gave everything to Craig. <laughs> I, I, I uh, you know, sort of got blotto on, on booze and, you know, and, uh, you know, tried um, 
sort of dabbled in, in, in drugs a little bit. Um, that, that probably scared me off a little bit. But uh, I found that gambling, I, mean, I wasn't gambling huge amounts of money. Um, and uh, initially I found that I could um, take up lots of time doing it and without a great cost um, because I, I wasn't gambling, you know, I was gambling sort of very small amounts of money at the pokies. Um, but like anything, uh, like any addiction, um, I guess the need became greater and greater. And, and um, by, that, by the time that it did start to become a problem of needing to hide uh, the financial kind of shenanigans I was having to do to, to sort of, you know, shuffle money from one account to another and you know, get credit cards and that sort of thing to, to hide it. Um, it was too late. I was already hooked. So it wasn't so much a kind of a choice of, um, you know, which form of addiction shall I, I have. It was, it was, a, it just happened to be that that's one is that one, that's the one that stuck. And um, I guess the other two forms that I tried um, left me in an impaired state. Yeah. Um, and I, I preferred this because it didn't leave me in an impaired state. It had the same numbing effect but without the downsides of, you know, not being able to drive or not being able to work. So what, what sort of things in your childhood led you to the, you know, to be prepared for gambling? Yeah, look, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a loving household, but I think there was this expectation, you know, when my parents were migrants and there's always an expectation in migrant families that children will do better than their parents and, you know, study well and work hard and be a good boy and, and all that kind of thing. And, and I really uh, was sensitive to the pressure of that. I mean, I, look, I was a, a good kid and I was a great student, but um, that didn't mean that I felt that I was enough. You know, I felt that I was constantly having to sort of prove myself and to be, um, to meet their expectations. And I resented that feeling um, and as a result of that resentment um, and the sort of constant scrutiny of what, what I felt was constant scrutiny of my life, I developed um, a kind of a secret life where I would do things that only I knew about and uh, that I could keep secret from everyone else. Uh, and I could somehow say to myself, Ha ha, you know, you, you think you've got me pegged, but I actually had this other secret. So I became very good at keeping secrets. And of course, um, good at being at keeping secrets means good at lying, really. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I could, I could dissemble very well. And, and uh, that stood me in good stead. And, and, uh, and, and at the same time, because I never learned how to deal with my anxieties other than through through lying and maintaining a secret life, I was absolutely primed for, for an addiction because that, that slotted right into those abilities. Yeah. So did, did you have any sort of, um, did you have low self-esteem or anything like that? Did you have any issues about self? I, I, I did. Um, it, it's funny because I, I uh, you know, at face value, I was, uh, uh, you know, one of the top students and, and kind of doing well, but uh, I, 
I, I felt um, I did have so low self-esteem. I, I felt incredibly shy around girls. I, you know, was a weedy kid, so I was never a sporty uh, kid. So that was another thing that I wasn't great at. You know, my migrant uh, parents didn't care about sport. They just wanted me to be good academically. So it didn't matter to them. But of course, when you're in a, a peer situation at, at school with a whole bunch of other kids playing footy and cricket, that was that was um, yeah not not comfortable. I was definitely a nerd. I was definitely yeah. a nerd at school, and and so always felt on the edge and a bit of an outcast uh, in that sense. You know. Yeah. So what about relationships then with your first wife? Was that was that a a good relationship? Obviously, it broke down, but was that part of the problem? Well, you know, I mean, I, I when we first met, we met. We were both travelling and. Uh, I suspect that I was kind of looking for a, a life to latch onto. And um, I mean, you know, we, we really liked one another and, and I can't say that I knew what love was. I, I didn't know what it was. So, you know, we decided in pretty short order to get married. And, um, and at first that was fine. You know, I was, I was on top of the world because I, I, I felt, uh, well, I was finally out from under the parental um, kind of purview, and and uh, but not really, not really actually, because you never are. You carry that with you, you know, that expectation that you believe that that they have, and um, and so I, I, you know, we sort of came back to Australia, and because uh, we met in Europe, and uh, uh, we settled into our own sort of household and routine. But I, I. Look, I pretty rapidly came to realise that um, something wasn't quite right, you know, in the first couple of years. And, you know, and as it turns out, you know, my wife, who, you know, I was also her sort of first marriage. And, and uh, I, well, how can I put this? You know, things weren't sort of uh, great in the bedroom. I don't know how else yeah. to put it. But, uh, and, and, and this isn't, I'm not sort of laying blame or anything like this at all, you know. Um, as it turns out, we weren't compatible for a reason. You know, she, unbeknownst to her, uh, you know, um, when we got married, sort of discovered her true sexuality in the course of our marriage, you know, and, and good for her. I mean, you know, that was a, a really healthy discovery for her, but it, it meant that the marriage was over for me. I found that hard to deal with, and it was when... I realised that our marriage was irretrievably broken as a result of that, that I turned to, to gambling and, 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 and I, you know, something that had previously just been a minor pastime became a problem. Yeah. So, um, so did gambling, what, what did gambling give you at that oh, point? Yeah, look, lots of things. I mean, it gave me a sense, you know, it, like I said, the secret life that I could maintain that was something that I controlled because my life was, in my view, was out of my control at that time, you know. The person I'd married uh, was kind of not the person that I was going to be with. I, I just felt adrift and so it gave me a sense of control. It also gave me a sense of isolation. I wanted to isolate. I've never been a super social person, you know, I, like in any group of people, of random people, I'm not going to be the life of the party. 
<laughs> amongst amongst my close friends, you know, once I sort of overcome that hurdle, you know, I'm, I'm an, a gregarious person, but um, uh, I it definitely wasn't that with strangers, and, and I craved the isolation. I wanted to be alone and away from my problems and away from life. When I was gambling, when I was sitting in a pokey venue, there were no demands placed on me. Uh, I didn't have to know how to respond. I didn't have to know how to deal or cope. And, and I could just pretend, you know, it created this sort of bubble of unreality when I walked through the doors of a venue that, that all the world's problems were held at bay outside. And I was in that nice, warm, comforting cave whiling away the hours. Yeah, right. It must have had, a, had an effect on your work as well. So, what, you know, how, oh, I, how, did, how did you manage work and gambling? Yeah, well, I, I didn't really. I mean, I, I was stealing time from work because, I mean, I was a, a crypto gambler, so, uh, and that nothing to do with cryptocurrencies, folks. Um, I, I, that just means that I was gambling in secret from my family and friends. No one really knew that I was gambling. And so I had to steal time from work in order to, to gamble to the degree that I wanted to. So on the way to work, I'd stop into a venue. At lunchtime, I'd spend at least two to three hours in a venue on the way. You know, I'd leave as soon as the clock ticked to five o'clock and get to a venue um, and stay there for as long as I possibly could without getting you know, the third degree when I got home because by this stage, um, you know, this was probably a couple of years after I first started gambling uh, manically and and I had gotten married again. And so I really didn't want um, that secret life to sort of come out because uh, my second wife thought the world of me and I was trying to maintain this sort of facade of control and and being a, a wonderful husband and a loving father kind of thing you know we had a we had a young uh, a new baby so I, I would steal time from work i had no desire to perform no ambition you know robbed me of my ambition robbed me of my productivity i wasn't productive at work i was basically just um clock watching it must have been difficult in the family then if you if you were starting to gamble, you know, starting to gamble more and more. So what was the thing that caused your gambling to, I guess, be uncovered? Yeah, look, I, I was using uh, my credit card uh, to gamble and, um, and uh, you know, putting a lot of, doing a lot of cash withdrawals on the credit card. Um, you know, that was mine. I would always intercept the uh, credit card statement. One fine day, I managed to, I failed to, to uh, intercept the credit card statement and my wife saw it and the jig was up. I mean, when you see a, you know, multiple on across multiple days that there are withdrawal after withdrawal from an ATM, you know, at the casino, you know, it says crown ATM, you know, <laughs> in, 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 in sort of, you know, an hour, an hour apart, you know, multiples on, on the same day and then, you know, many days in a row, it's pretty obvious what's happening. You can't, you can't explain that away, right? No. Okay. Well, listen, we might take a short break there. You're listening to 3CR, 
We're at this time we're bringing you slightly different programming than usual, but rest assured we're still here, bringing you radical, alternative current affairs, music and community language programming. Stay tuned to 3CR. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our over 140 podcasts, then you can either head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about Living Free Show and how to contact us. Alternatively, you can call 3CR office on 9419 8377 and leave a message. Today I'm talking about compulsive gambling with Michael and we're talking about recovery from compulsive gambling through Gamblers Anonymous. Um, Michael, um, the thing about having or, or being exposed, I guess, is you know, the, the amount of money you were, you were gambling. And I think you said earlier you weren't a big gambler, but what, what sort of impact did that have on the, on the family finances? Yeah, look, I, I, it's true. I wasn't a, a, a big gambler uh, in, in comparison to, to many other people who come into the fellowship. The, the impact on, on the family finances in my specific example, uh, a situation was not huge because I really only resorted to credit cards. It was in relative terms manageable. I, yeah. I, 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 the, the, the house wasn't mine it was my wife's so so i didn't have access to a mortgage um or i couldn't remortgage it or do anything like that you know um thank goodness but really the impacts were just as devastating if the amounts had been 10 times higher because uh, the behavior that i was exhibiting and the the state of my mind at the time that i got caught and and you know i was planning to commit crime to get more money with which to gamble. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's so far beyond the person I thought I was and that everyone else thought I was, but that's where uh, my compulsion had gotten me to. So even though in financial, strict financial terms, the damage I did was not great um, because I needed to keep gambling in secret uh, and the only way to do that and, and get access to money was to, for me was to uh, commit crime. That's what I had, that's the point I had gotten to. And so I, I tell people it's not about the amounts of money. It's about what you had stooped to. And I had stooped pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. It's what you need to do to, to gamble. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So gambling is a, a second life in real terms. So what's it like living the second life with the first life and trying to keep them separate, if you like? Um, so, you know, what's a, what's a day, a day in the life of a, a problem gambler? Yeah, look, a day in the life of this problem gambler would be waking up too early, you know, half freaked out about what I had done the day before, usually after very few hours of sleep because I would stay awake trying to think about how I was going to, A, cover uh, the losses that I had made uh, and, B, find further funds with which to, to gamble because I was ever the hopeful gambler thinking that I'd kind of, you know, I was chasing losses. I, I, I thought that I would have a big win, be able to square the ledger and walk away. 
And of course, it was the last part that failed. You know, I occasionally had a big win, but I could never walk away. So the big win always turned into a bigger loss. So I'd wake up, I'd get ready for work. On the way in, would go to a venue, stay as long as I could before uh, getting to work unreasonably late. Stay there, you know, clock, uh, watch the clock until quarter to 12. Duck out immediately straight into a venue, often without having, having lunch because, you know, I, I might scoff a couple of dim sims or something because they're really cheap and, uh, you know, and spend every, every dollar I could um, gambling. And then usually I'd sort of wander back in uh, or try and sneak in at around 2.30 and that's after having come out of a venue you know, from the darkness back into the light with a sick feeling in my gut, not in my throat, um, thinking I've done it again, I've lost it again. How could I do this? How could I do this again? You know, I said I'd stop. I said I'd change. I said I'd obey a limit, you know, stick to a limit. Um, you know, there were no limits. There were no limits. You know, I, so, so many times I've wandered back into work with nothing in my pockets and an empty stomach. And then I sort of, it would get to five o'clock and I'd run out, get to a venue again, scrape a few bucks, whatever I could, hit an ATM again uh, in order to, to, to gamble a bit more and, uh, and then get home and, and have to, and, and I actually distinctly remember walking from the station to my house and consciously thinking I've got to now sort of put the smile on and act as if everything is fine and walk in and kind of, you know, tell people I've had a great day, tell my wife I had a great day, and how was your day? And of course, I'd sort of superficially engage with people, but I was never really present. I wouldn't engage, I wouldn't really listen. It's obvious in hindsight that everyone thought I was distracted, but um, I don't think they realised quite why. What's it like trying to figure out how to cover it up after you've lost it? It's incredibly disheartening and manic. I mean, it, it's in, interesting because I, I remember my mind racing and um, I remember having an ability to really think on my feet very quickly. Now, I don't know if it's because I've gotten older, but I seem to have lost that ability. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I do think that often, you know, addicts are very smart people and that need, that compulsion drives them to be really inventive, you know, and, uh, and so that's often how I felt. I mean, I would, you know, race through scenarios in my head, practice lies, come up with a story, was it believable, what, what did I have to say to prepare the way, you know, so that I could then kind of slowly unfold this lie that would be the cover-up and, and then what point could I get, you know, what was the point that I could get to where I, where I had succeeded with the lie and then it was kind of uh, clear skies ahead so I could then move on to the next adventure of, of you know, getting money and gambling it away, you know. It was, it was just a, re- a repetitive cycle of that. I mean, honestly, life as a compulsive gambler was like Groundhog Day. I can see that. So did you ever have to wait till a payday before you could gamble again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were there were numerous times because, uh, you know, I, I knew that I I had either maxed out a credit card, you know, and and literally had just sort of lunch money left, 
so, so there, there were plenty of times when, I had, when, when that was the case. And that's when often the cover-up things would, would happen because I'd, I'd do a balance at an ATM. This was, you know, kind of uh, in the 90s, I'd do a balance at an ATM of the savings account, do a balance, at, you know, transfer money into the credit card, do a balance on that, and then sort of transfer money. But I was transferring back and forth so that I could get, you know, receipts that showed healthy balances in both. In both. <laughs> and uh, it, look, it wasn't, in, in hindsight, the only reason that that didn't get um, scrutiny, you know, I didn't get caught over that was because there wasn't the, the scrutiny. And the, the reason there wasn't the scrutiny was because I had trust. You know, I was trusted. And, uh, you know, and I sort of totally abused that trust and then violently shattered it when I got caught. Yeah. Uh, and so you were playing the pokies. And, mostly, mostly. And, and you were, I think you are also gambling a bit online when online gambling was pretty early. Yeah. Um, so what, what, was the, what was the online like compared to the venue? Well, it was, it was kind of perfect for me because it was something I could do totally on my own. I mean, as I said earlier, I, I liked the isolation. Uh, and occasionally in a venue you'd get... Um, well, how could I describe him? The sort of uh, the talkative, happy punter who who wants to be your mate, you know. And and honestly, I I couldn't care. To, I didn't want to talk to anyone, you know. So so, and I really hated being disturbed when I was gambling. I really hated that. So so, online gambling was a great way to 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 complete the isolation. And occasionally, I would work from home, and and that's when I would do it. And it was a bit of a wild west. I mean, this was sort of mid nineties. The World Wide Web was a, a new thing, and and uh, you know, of course, uh, like uh, like every um, new technology, vice often sort of is the, at the forerunner of, of technology. And, and and even though I, I mean, I work in IT, and I, I was working in IT back then, so you know, I wasn't new to the internet. You know, it, it was something that I was actively exploring and. And so, of course, as a compulsive gambler, I, I found those and latched onto those things pretty quickly. And it was a bit of a wild west, but I didn't care. Yeah. I didn't care. So what was your wife's reaction when you were exposed gambling in your second marriage? She was pretty devastated. Pretty devastated. I mean, the, you know, anyone that's been through that experience of getting caught, the shame that you feel is absolutely surpassed by the devastation you can see on the other person's face, you know, and uh, I mean, the trust was just completely shattered, but to her, to her immense credit and uh, to my great fortune, she saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. She you know, thought I was a, a nice guy and a good guy at heart and that I had this problem that I had to fix it. And, uh, you know, and she wanted me to fix it. There was no talk of, of, you know, I mean, we still, we had a young family. We were still fairly newly married. We had a, a child that was uh, just under one. You know, I was incredibly lucky to be given a chance, you know. And uh, I went, I sought out uh, gambler's help, which was a relatively new thing at that time. And, uh, you know, this was late 90s by this stage. While the counsellor was very helpful and well-meaning, well-intentioned. Uh, you know, he offered me a choice between uh, seeking to abstain from gambling forever 
and seeking to be able to control my gambling. And for me, that was um, incredibly enticing because I got a lot of emotional uh, or psychological value out of gambling, the, the numbing you know, and, and the isolation, which, which is what I valued. And, and so I thought that being able to control it would mean that I could keep doing it, but without the side effect of the financial problems or you know, having to fess up or, or any of that. So was willpower su- sufficient? Not for me. Not for you. Not for me. Um, I, I had tried, made attempts on my own in the past to try and control my gambling, setting time limits, setting money limits, you know, sort of setting kind of arbitrary preconditions. I'll only go when it's a day like this and I've done something else first, you know. But my, my problem was that I could never stay away. And then whenever I had started, I started to gamble, I could never, you know, any limit that I had set, whether of time or money or both, I, you know, it was, it was like a, you know, a paper tiger. I mean, it, it, it was like working your way out of a wet paper bag, incredibly easy, no resistance, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I had zero willpower in the face of my, my addiction. Zero. Yeah. It didn't work out very well. Yeah. <laughs> So how were you uncovered the second time? Yeah, look, I mean, the second time, as a result of being caught the first time and, and seeing gambler's help, uh, we had changed the financial arrangements so that we had a joint account. And so that there was now no way for me to, to access money in any meaningful amount without getting caught. I mean, it was just impossible. And even though, and, and knowing that was the case, I still was compelled to gamble, you know, and I knew I would get caught, you know, and, and I don't know, I, I, I honestly can't tell you why that wasn't sufficient to stop me. Maybe I thought I'd get a big win and square the ledger and, and we can call it, you know, sort of evens and then walk away. But of course, I mean, that was a pipe dream, an absolute pipe dream. I'd been trying to do that for years and, and, and all that was happening was the ledger kept getting bigger, you know, with more red ink in it. So I gambled again and, and I did inevitably get caught. And uh, at that time, it was a bit of an ultimatum. I faced losing my family. I was already suicidal by that point because I, I absolutely despaired of ever stopping gambling and of ever getting this under control. And so it was a perfect storm of despair that led me to GA. And uh, it was best thing that ever happened i my first meeting was just shrouded in tears i don't recall what i said i don't recall what was said to me but i remember getting an overwhelming sense of of comfort and support from those present i remember thinking that they seem to be doing okay that that they've obviously had this problem and that there is that they seem to be okay you know life is okay for them and and so it gave me a lot of hope and uh, I, I knew that, that GA was the way forward for me. Okay, awesome. We might take another short break. In 2020, 3CR is delivering our Beyond the Bars project differently. 
We've been speaking to the Indigenous men and women in Victorian prisons over the phone and we'll bring you those chats throughout the week of Monday, July the 6th to Friday, July the 10th. You can also catch up on the audio from the project online at 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2020. We want to see our men and women out of the prison system, but while they're still there, we will give them a voice through Beyond the Bars. Make sure you listen in. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And I'm talking with Michael about recovering from compulsive gambling with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. So, Michael... How quickly did GA help you to overcome the need to gamble? Yeah, look, I, I was one of the lucky ones, I guess. I, I had that gift of desperation and, and uh, you know, I, I really took to it. I, I didn't want to feel suicidal. I didn't want to lose my family. And so I kind of ran to the program with open arms, you know, and uh, I, within a few weeks, honestly, the... the compulsion to, to, to gamble was gone. And, and I felt so, so far distant from the, the person that I was just a few short weeks earlier. You know, I, 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 I distinctly remember looking back and thinking, who was that guy? You know, that guy was so different to who I am now. I mean, the reality was that, that there's hardly been a change, but I felt that there was this gulf between this new abstinent me, newly abstinent me, and that person that was doing this crazy stuff and wanting to commit crimes and was suicidal and, you know, all sorts of things. So I, 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 it didn't take long at all in my case. I mean, I know everyone's journey is different, but for me it really didn't take uh, long at all. And, uh, you know, and I sort of... And, and maybe that was a bit of a, an undoing for me in the longer term because... Because I managed to, to get uh, some easy abstinence up early, I sort of never really dug further into the program and I got, I got kind of comfortable at, at where I was, just attending a meeting once a week and, and not doing much more than that, not really working the program, not understanding the steps. You know, I was treating it a bit like a you know, a sort of a buffet or an a la carte menu where you can just kind of pick and choose what you'll have. And, and, uh, and for me, I thought just attending the meeting was sufficient and accepting step one that I was powerless. Great, I've done that. Uh, I'm abstinent. What more can I ask for? I'll leave it at that. And that kind of sowed the seed for, you know, a future kind of setback, I guess, uh, where a number of years later, I got really busy with work, you know, the family, we had two kids by then and, and uh, time was, was precious. I was studying part-time as well. I started dropping off meetings, thinking that I didn't need them, that I was okay. And, uh, and as I dropped off meetings, it wasn't long before the character sort of defects that I had suppressed came flooding back. And, and you know, I never really learned how to deal with emotional stresses or psychological stresses. I never learned how to deal with my anxieties, even though I had been abstinent in the program. And because I never learned how to deal with those things, when I, the second I left the program, I faced those same issues, except this time I knew that I couldn't gamble and I shouldn't gamble. You know, I was quote unquote cured. So I exhibited, you know, that, that inability to deal with things exhibited 
in me as as anger and uh, you know i was a very angry human being for a number of years while i wasn't attending the fellowship and uh and i had you know i think three busts in a period of six or seven years where i would gamble for you know a week to a month and then sort of stop and but it wasn't that i was doing financial damage i was doing emotional damage you know i i really emotionally abused my wife and my kids with my anger and um and things that I was saying. I was a really a, a terrible person in that time, you know, and that was all because I didn't, uh, I hadn't worked through the program. You know, I had done the bare minimum and then walked away. And so I was primed to, to return to being that emotional cripple, you know. Yeah. So it, it's sort of about control, isn't it? So absolutely. Yeah. The, the more you try and control your behavior, the, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was, you know, we have a term, uh, and I think, you know, most fellowships have it, it's called white, white knuckling, you know, where you try and sort of grip onto your abstinence, um, not by working the program, but just through willpower. And of course, I'd already proven to myself that willpower didn't work. And so the stress of trying to not gamble, yeah, sort of played out in really negative ways. To sort of great and lasting shame, and I, I sort of emotionally damaged my kids and psychologically damaged my kids, and we're all working through that today. And even though we're in a better place, and I'm back in the program and have been for quite a number of years, um, you know, it took um, it took me years to go back to the program, and and uh, and and doing that was an accident of fate. You know, um, a family member needed. Uh, help not a direct family member needed uh, had a gambling issue and needed help so I took them to their first meeting and that was my first meeting back and I realized what I had missed and realized that you know I needed to stop being this angry man and start getting better and actually getting better within myself not just abstaining from gambling and so I committed totally to the program at that point and uh, started doing multiple meetings meetings a week and service work, got a sponsor, worked through steps, uh, you know, attended steps meetings, became a sponsor uh, recently. Uh, you know, I'm a far, I'm still a flawed human being. I'm definitely, I'm by no means perfect, you know, be under no illusion. All those things that made me my worst me are still in there. It's just that today I've added, uh, you know, a few more, uh, ingredients and, and a few new behaviors that I've tried to kind of strengthen around being a better me and um, you know and, and today I'm aware of, of my flaws and aware of the the thinking process that that leads me back to those negative thought patterns um, that are a hallmark of compulsion and addiction so what about relationships now with your with your wife and, and kids so how much better are they than when you weren't going to GA? Oh, vastly, vastly better. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm now probably one of the calmest people in our family unit, you know, and, and, and it has often occurred to me with no, sen- with no small sense of irony that I'm lucky to have had the fellowship in my life because, you know, I, I now do have the tools for being able to deal with, with situations and, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, we went through the teenage years, and 
my girls also have a, a, a suffer from various forms of mental illness like I do. I suffer from clinical depression and I see a psychologist for that. But now I'm, I'm, I'm able to deal with that and because I've been so open about my recovery and, and my addiction and um, the 12-step the program, especially with, um, I mean, they're proud of me and, um, you know, I, I think they feel comfortable now talking to me about, about uh, issues or emotional issues like I said, it's still not perfect, but, um, you know, we have our moments, but then every family has their moments and, and that's to be expected. It's part of life. And I shouldn't desire things to be perfect. You know, um, things, life is what it is. And, and I just have to learn to, to deal with it reasonably. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, to be able to respond to it rather than react. Yeah. The issue around family is that, they're there. We've we do damage to family by our behaviour. So, what what sort of amends can you make to your family these days? Yeah, that's a really good question, and and I've I've, I've struggled with that one for a few years because um, I honestly thought because the damage wasn't primarily financial in in my instance, uh, it was emotional. I really thought, well, how how can I make amends? For, for that emotional sort of abuse, you know, and and really the secret is in the program. I, I can't change the past. I can only change the present. And so uh, each day I try and be uh, the best person I can be. I try and, you know, follow the steps of the program. I mean, every, you know, you asked me earlier, what was the day of a typical gambler? Well, I can tell you a typical day today starts with me when I open my eyes in the morning, I'll reach for my phone and on the phone, I've got two readings that I do every day. So there's a, a book called the daily stoic, uh, stoic philosophy, which is very closely aligned to 12 step. And so I'll read the day's reading for that. And then I'll read the day's reading for the GA one day at a time book and doing those things as literally the first thing I do in the morning sets me up for success it, it, it kind of um it's like hitting a reset button every morning so you know it flushes out uh, whatever was there and lets me reset my um sort of serenity and equanimity and uh, a preparedness to to deal with things as they are rather than as i want them to be and so you know i usually start off the day pretty well as I said earlier, not all days are the same. You know, some days are easy and some days are, are harder. But by being a different me, by being a more more calm and accepting and understanding me, the relationship that I have today with my uh, kids especially is a thousand times better than it ever was. And so that's the only way I can make amends by being a better me today and by trying to show them the example of change that, that if things are bad, they can get better. You yeah. can be a different you, you know, I, I, they, they've seen it. They've seen that change from this horrible person to this vastly better person. And so if I could do it, then they can do it. In, in whatever sphere of life. So, so I try and make amends just by being an example and to maintain that example. Yeah. 
Um, on a different subject, what's, um, given the coronavirus has stopped a lot of face-to-face -face meetings, so how are you finding electronic meetings? Um, really good, actually. I mean, look, there's, there, there's um, uh, benefits to Zoom meetings as well. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure we miss out on the, on the sort of camaraderie that you get in a physical meeting. You know, people in a physical meeting will often turn up early, you know, make a cup of tea, have a bit of a, a chat, you know, talk about the footy more often than not, although not much footy to be had at the moment, you know, and then we'll, we'll have the meeting and then people will usually hang around afterwards for a bit and continue and have a bit of a social chat. And that's a big part of, of that kind of connecting. So, you know, you know, we spoke about, I spoke about isolation, you know, I sought out isolation and, and I think a big part of the fellowship is that sense of connection so the socialising aspect is a, is a part of that too. But um, the, the good thing about Zoom meetings is, apart from the fact that they are there, you know, so, so you don't have to go without, you know, and, and seriously, uh, missing meetings is not an option for me. I know if I have to miss a meeting, you know, I start to feel narky. I, I don't feel like, I really look forward to my meetings. So the, my, the meetings that I attend happen to be on a Monday and Tuesday. So it's like I start the week kind of on top of the world and, and, and mm. uh, you know, and I can sort of really healthily sort of then coast through the rest of the week. And, and I've continued that actually with the electronic meetings. I chair a meeting on Monday night at 8 p.m. and, and one on Tuesday at 6 p.m. And uh, it's been great because what we've found is, is that people are now in the same boat all over the world and so people are seeking out meetings ir irrespective of where they are. So I've had yeah. uh, Zoom meetings where we've had, uh, you know, it's ostensibly an Australian meeting, a Victorian meeting, but we've had not just people from interstate, but we've had people from the UK, uh, from, you know, from England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, a guy from, from the States, even though it was like three in the morning, his time, you know, he, he sort of uh, joined in. There's a, a fellow that joins uh, the meetings that I'm on from South Korea, uh, you know, an 80 year old fellow. So it's been a real, uh, it's been really good actually, you know, it's, it's, it's been wonderful. And I've actually formed some relationships with some of the people in the UK and the chap from South Korea. And, and uh, so, you know, there's some relationships that will survive beyond you know, the COVID lockdown. Yeah, and that's a great thing. And of course, for country Australians, um, you know, we've got a couple of people that have uh, that are really loving the meetings throughout the country. And unlike some of the other, the bigger fellowships like AA, GA doesn't have a huge presence. And if you're out in country Australia, even though the, though the problem can be just as bad, if not worse, you know, you're you're really left with 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 little option other than trying to come to the nearest suburban meeting, and and, and that's very hard you know so the zoom meetings have been a godsend for rural australians yeah yeah okay michael um well if anybody's interested in gamblers anonymous and like to find out a bit more then you can phone them in victoria on 03 9696 or you can go online at gaaustralia.org.au for more information and for local phone numbers and meetings so that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Michael for sharing his gambling and recovery story with us and talking about how Gamblers Anonymous helped him. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Uh, join us again next week when we'll feature recovery from compulsive drinking and we'll be joined by some members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks for listening.
take us out, we've got a song called Am I Ever Gonna See Your Face Again from the Angels uh, off their Greatest Hits album.